Hello, you're listening to On Israel in Al Monitor. I am Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv indeed. Many people looking at Israel see a small country, stubborn and unified, a tough nut planted in a hostile neighborhood, surviving against all odds. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Israel is a classic tribal state. Its nine and a half million citizens comprise Jews and Muslims of all stripes, religious, ultra-Orthodox, traditionalists and secular, Christian Arabs, Ashkenazi Jews of European origin, and Mizrahi Jews whose ancestors hailed from Arab states, conservative and liberal Israelis, and this is just a partial list. Every group is made up, up of endless subgroups, which together make for a unique mis- mixture. In other words, there is nothing quite like it in the world. Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Jewish people and of Israel, but this, but this tiny state has another capital, Tel Aviv. While Jerusalem is one of the holiest places on earth, sanctified by Jehovah, Jesus, and Allah, Tel Aviv is the sin city, the hub of liberal, multicultural, wild, and universal Israel. Jerusalem is a spiritual, historic, tense mountaintop city. Tel Aviv is a hedonistic, modern, relaxed beachside town. It is a world-renowned LGBT tourist destination, offering a diverse buffet of Mediterranean and European cuisine, art, and culture. The two are worlds apart, yet separated by less than an hour drive along the Route 1 highway. We will be talking today about Tel Aviv, or as many, as many Israelis call it, the state of Tel Aviv. Our guest is Eitan Schwartz, head of media and communications for the Tel Aviv Yafo municipality. Eitan also oversees the city's promotion, branding, and strategic positioning. He joins us right after this brief break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. Now I'm very happy to say uh, hello and shalom to my uh, good friend, the head of the media and communications for the Tel Aviv Yafo municipality, Eitan Schwartz. Shalom, Eitan. How are you doing? Thank you for joining us here in uh, On Israel in Al Monitor. Shalom, Ben. Good to be here. 
Okay, so we're going to talk not about Israel, but about Tel Aviv. And, uh, and when you hear people calling Tel Aviv the state of Tel Aviv, do you think they are praising or condemning uh, the city? It's a derogatory term. Uh, when Israelis use that term, they usually refer to Tel Aviv, if you will, um, as a model of success. Uh, as a model of prosperity, uh, but also in juxtaposition to Israel as a city that doesn't necessarily take the burden of being part of Israeli society, which is somehow removed from uh, the difficulties and the challenges of Israeli society. And that's something that the mayor of Tel Aviv and the people that work for the city uh, very much uh, feel bad about. We feel that it is uh, um, judging our city in a way that uh, we feel we don't deserve. We feel part of Israeli society, part of the Israeli mosaic, if you will. Uh, uh, we represent values that at least represent a large chunk of Israeli society. And we would love that our values be uh, part of the, the overall consensus of Israeli society. But we're very proud to be Israelis and we're first and foremost Israelis. I think uh, that, that what you say, uh, actually we can see uh, in the city because if you go, uh, and this is a follow-up question, if you go in Tel Aviv and, and, and ask the citizens, uh, mainly the youngsters, everyone came from somewhere in, in Israel. That's, that's, that's the case. Well, the mayor of Tel Aviv was not born in Tel Aviv, and most of the senior management of the city was not born there. And when you look at the people that, are, that identify themselves with uh, the city, uh, artists, uh, actors, uh, movie stars, they all come from all parts of Israeli society and they immigrate to the large city, which is the case in every country in the world. Uh, people seek, the creative class seeks a place, uh, the economic elite seeks a place, the political elite it tends to congregate in the large city. Um, and it's the same all over the world. And by the way, Ben, we might touch on this before, if you will, uh, this animosity between the major city, which tends to be more successful in economic terms, and more progressive politically vis-a-vis uh, -vis the other peripheral parts of the country, which tend to be more conservative, you see this phenomenon throughout the Western world. You see it in the United States and you see it throughout Europe. This notion that there is a state of Paris and a state of London and a state of New York that is different from the, uh, from the larger national concern, this is something that cities in the 21st century deal with all over the world. Yes, unlike many other things, this is not an Israeli invention. And uh, Tel Aviv is a, is a bastion of uh, liberalism, freedom, and pluralism, whereas the country around it is turning more radical and conservative. Uh, you just said it. And do you see this as a natural phenomenon of a big city drawing liberal elements, or did the city's founding fathers and its mayor for the past 20, more than 20 years, Ron Khuldai, plan it, uh, plan it uh, to happen like this, this way. So all of the above are true. The, the founders of the city uh, in 1909, uh, so more than 110 years ago, when they founded the city on sand dunes, empty sand dunes north of the ancient port city of Jaffa, which we all know from the Old Testament, that's where Jonah, uh, that's where Jonah uh, escaped to when he was escaping his prophecy, and that's where uh, that also appears in the Old in the New Testament. It's an ancient port city. So north of that, the founders of the city of Tel Aviv founded their city in in sand dunes when there was nothing around them, and they said, "We are now creating the New York of the land of Israel." In 1909, 
So they have a very, very, very ambitious uh, plan for their city. So that's part of the DNA. It's part of the DNA of the mayor, which belongs to the uh, left wing of Israeli politics, which is part of the Israeli Labor Party, and he believes in social democratic values. Um, and that was very, very clear um, over the past 10 years when we had a very ultra-conservative government that was really, really, um, if you will, uh, an opposite reflection of the values of the city. But you also see this throughout the world. Look at what happened, for instance, in London, when uh, England goes to a more conservative uh, type of government, when England uh, elects to be part of, to, to leave the European uh, Union, uh, the people of London elect a left-wing Muslim, which is very, 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 very uh, radical. Uh, it's the same in Paris, a more uh, centrist government and a left-wing mayor. And it's the same throughout the world. And of course, if you see what happens in the United States during the time of Trump, the American electorate is conservative, right-wing, tends to be more religious. Does that remind you of a country we both know very well? Israel. But all the major cities were controlled by Democratic uh, mayors. So you see this, a, a large city where left-wing voters, progressive voters, uh, more liberal voters tend to, uh, tend to live. And the more rural areas tend to be more conservative, more religious, more right-wing. Much of the, let's talk about tourism. Much of the tourism to Israel is centered on uh, sites that are uh, holy to all three major religions. We have plenty of it in Jerusalem, in the Galilee, in the Sea of the Galilee, and elsewhere. Uh, parts are, uh, I'm sorry, uh, what draws foreign tourists to Tel Aviv? And, and what turns them off? If it were up to you, what would you fix in order to make the city even more attractive? So what you're saying is true, and let's not talk about right now, because right now there are probably zero tourists in the city and in uh, Israel, uh, close to zero. Uh, when we're speaking right now, we're in the, in, the, in the heart of our fourth round of the pandemic, and essentially the, the country is shut down for tourists. But before COVID, two years ago, uh, we were enjoying phenomenal uh, uh, numbers for Tel Aviv. And it's true what you're saying, and it's and that's actually it, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon because when you look at Israel as a tourist attraction, the single most uh, attractive trait of Israel, the monopoly, if you will, we have, is around the religious and holy sites. Um, you have scenery in many countries, you have culinary in many countries, you have culture in many countries, but no country uh, can claim the fame of having the place where Jesus was born and where Jesus uh, walked and operated and the holiest site for the Jewish religion and one of the holiest sites for the Muslim religion. Um, so it's true. And, and that it makes sense that Israel always positions itself as a tourist attraction around these uh, monumental sites, these places that you have to see at least once in your lifetime and that all Western society or all uh, Judeo-Christian society or monotheistic society uh, is based on. Having said that, over the past 10 years, uh, you see a rise in tourism to Tel Aviv, and this is part of a global phenomenon that we call the city breaks. People go less and less to these long excursions that take a week or two weeks, where they visit entire countries or regions, but they go to short uh, and many more vacations in cities. So if uh, 40 years ago, 
uh, when I was celebrating my bar mitzvah, it was very, very common that people would go on a bar mitzvah trip to Switzerland and France or to Italy and France, and their parents would take them on a two-week visit. Now people are down to two or three days visiting specific cities. And in that trend, uh, Tel Aviv managed to emerge very, very, very nicely as a city break, which is very cool, which is very fun, which is very energetic. Um, we have a very unique blend between a very cool city um, and a beach city. Usually beach cities are not very cool and cool cities are not on the beach. I never This thought about it. It's, 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 a, it's a unique point that you're just raising. A, a beach city is not cool. For example, New York and London are not beach cities and they are very cool. You actually say that Tel Aviv managed to be both, to, to hold both ends of the stick, being a beach, a very nice beach city and very cool city. This is a very, very small, exclusive club of cities, of less than 10 cities around the world that have this combination. For us Israelis, and I think for many people, the uh, most uh, quintessential example is Barcelona. One day when we grow up, we will be Barcelona. That's, our, that's what we say when we, when we deal with our tourism management, because that is a very unique case of the city, which is extremely cool, culinary, architecture, nightlife, uh, urban life, and so on and so forth, and a very, very nice beach. Uh, in the United States, you have Miami. Um, to some extent, you have Los Angeles, but that's not really a very, very urban site. You have places like Sydney. So you see, it's a very, very unique positioning. And people love that about the city, that they're close to the beach and they can enjoy the beach and they can also enjoy world-class restaurants and the best DJs in the world playing in the evening. So th this is really what made Tel Aviv uh, a unique tourist attraction. And I want to say two things because we mentioned being in a country which is relatively uh, um, conservative, or at least it has many conservative elements. One of the things I must give credit to the people in the city hall before me that ran uh, tourism policy and the mayor of Tel Aviv, Juan Corday, was identifying the gay lesbian segment of tourism as extremely uh, attractive because we are the center of LGBTQ uh, life in Israel and it's a very, very important part of our city culture and our city population. And the city managed to brand itself as a gay haven, if you will. And this is a fantastic segment of tourism because gay tourism tends to be Um, to, it tends to be uh, trendsetters. People see where gay people are vacationing and they want to go there. The LGBTQ population stays longer, spends more money, and comes back and back several times. So it's a fantastic segment. And that happened about 15 years ago. Uh, but if you will, the twist in Israeli marketing of Tel Aviv as the prime destination with Jerusalem actually should be attributed to Yariv Levin, the former Minister of Tourism, and I'm mentioning his name because even though he was, an, if you will, an ultra-conservative in his political views and part of the government, which was in opposition to the values of Tel Aviv on a political view, so to say, he understood that in terms of tourism marketing, he had a really good brand here, and we must give him credit, the amount of money that the country has been spending in the past few years on marketing Tel Aviv is unprecedented, and even to the extent that some people that deal with Israeli politics say that the state of Israel was pinkwashing itself, um, using the term taken from greenwashing, using the gay population and the pluralistic and liberal uh, values of Tel Aviv as a way to manifest itself abroad and to stir away emotion or, or attention from what the country is doing. We, of course, object that. But in any event, these campaigns promoting Tel Aviv were fantastic. And we've seen record-breaking numbers in 
2019, and then came COVID and essentially wiped out uh, all of our all of our achievements. I didn't know that uh, Yariv Levin. It's a huge uh, scoop because you know right? Yariv Levin is supposed to to focus on Jerusalem, coming from the far right in the Likud, and I, but actually he's a smart guy. And he understood that Tel Aviv is the, the real asset. Everybody knows about Jerusalem, but Tel Aviv, as you said, is the, is the, the very unique thing that the tourists can come to see here. So uh, if he is the leader of this uh, phenomenon, so, uh, so let it be. But, but you know, Tel Aviv is not very beautiful. Since we both love this town, we can admit <laughs> that it's, uh, it's not a classically beautiful. Parts are even uh, pretty ugly. How do you explain the intense buzz? Actually, you, you explained the intense buzz. You, you said the, the, the gays and lesbians. And you know what? Maybe you can say something uh, more specific about the, the culinary scene. It, it became, in the last 10 or 15 years, a capital of, of uh, top uh, uh, restaurants that, uh, you know, we, we are not shy of, uh, of Barcelona and, and London and New York. Well, you know, we have been... Watching this phenomenon with uh, with awe, it's it's quite amazing. What has happened to travel journalism around the world, and um, this is across the board, you see from reporting large destinations, monumental destinations, actually going down to very specific places. So it is not um, it is not very rare to find uh, the food critic of the most important newspaper in the world writing about a small food stand someplace or street food someplace. And in that sense, it's true that the restaurant scene here in Tel Aviv is fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, we have a very, very, very thriving vegetarian scene here in Tel Aviv. And even more important for the world media, a vegan scene. We have a lot of vegan restaurants and a lot of vegan activity. And they have been writing about this um, with an extensive um, scope, which is pretty amazing. Now, let me tell you a secret about how we've been marketing ourselves for the past 20 years, which is quite unique. And this is an asset we have. Um, ben, if you compare us to Barcelona, if you compare us to Oslo, if you compare us to Warsaw, uh, if you compare us to Liverpool, what is the one thing that we have that they will never have? And I'm talking about branding and marketing. What is the one asset that we have in this city and this country that they will never have? If you ask me, and I'm not a tourism specialist, the weather. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what? I'll say something, and I hope it doesn't come across as cynical. We have a conflict. We have a conflict. And because we have a conflict, in this country and in this city reside more international reporters than in all of these cities I just mentioned. So we are a city of 400,000 people, which has representation of all the major media outlets in the world, all the news agencies in the world. And what that produces is hundreds of people that are paid monthly salaries that have to produce um, articles every day. Now, when unfortunately something bad is happening, they report that. But when nothing is happening, they'll write about a restaurant. They'll write about a nightclub. They'll write about an art gallery or they'll write about uh, a, a new boutique hotel. We have been able to use this asset in our advantage. And if you will, we do not invest any money in marketing. All of our efforts go on PR. So we have these reporters writing stories about 
a fantastic new restaurant in Tel Aviv, and essentially they're writing about Tel Aviv. Or they're writing about a new hotel in Tel Aviv, and essentially they're writing about Tel Aviv. So we managed to create this media buzz around the city by virtue of the fact that we have more foreign reporters living here in absolute numbers than most cities in the world. But I also, I, I, I insist to put in the protocol that uh, I mentioned weather, because this is a huge advantage of Tel Aviv. The eternal summer, even the winter is, is uh, ridiculous. And uh, at least half, or half of the year, tourists from the West, uh, from Europe especially, want to, to, you know, to, to see some sun in Tel Aviv, and it, it helps us uh, as well. And since, uh, and in addition, I'm sorry to these uh, tourism attractions that we just sp spoke about, Tel Aviv is also a magnet for global startups and uh, multinational corporations. If Israel is known as a startup nation, then Tel Aviv is uh, its capital. Uh, what has made it uh, the way it is? And how does one uh, maintain its status? This year, Tel Aviv broke uh, uh, an all-time record of in terms of uh, high-tech investments. Is this good or bad for the people who live there? This is a fantastic question, because what we are experiencing now as a city, I think, is something that uh, San Francisco experienced a decade ago. We, as you said, we are the startup city of the startup nation. And again, we have to give credit to the state of Israel that because of many processes, uh, that the state created and all kinds of historic uh, circumstances. In the 1990s, we start seeing the emergence of a technology sector in Israel, a country that has uh, no natural resources up until a few years ago, has no real trade partners around it, and is a small country, so can't rely on industry, so it has to develop technology, and Israel managed to become a technological haven. Within that uh, evolution of technology, you see throughout the world countries that have technological sectors that are significant. The startup sector tends to congregate in the major cities, in the creative cities, in the young cities, and the energetic cities, and we are that. So what we see about 10 years later in the beginning of the year 2000 and then the first decade of the, of, of the millennium, we see the emergence of these small startup companies appearing in the city. Now, today, we are the city with the highest concentration of startup companies per capita or per square kilometer in the world. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of companies. What began about five years ago was a new phenomenon of uh, international, uh, multinational corporations noticing this, this bubbly ecosystem. And they start opening offices here as research and development centers. And what they do is they either acquire Israeli startups and they implement them and they swallow them into their global operation, or they assemble teams and say, hey, we want this product, uh, come, up with, uh, come up with this product. Now, is this good or bad? It is fantastic if you're part of it. It's very, very, very alarming and concerning if you're not, because what we are experiencing in the country in general and in the city of Tel Aviv is a rise of uh, prices of real estate in unprecedented uh, values. It has uh, become extremely expensive to acquire or to rent an apartment in the city of Tel Aviv. Uh, so this notion that uh, there's a fantastic prosperity and it trickles down to everybody, that's not happening the way maybe people would have imagined. You have um, very, very, very large numbers of people in the city with uh, huge wealth, but you see other people which are not enjoying the same type of wealth and it's driving prices up. Now, let me give you this figure, which is very, very interesting. In our workforce in the city of Tel Aviv, 
one out of every 10 people works in the technology sector. One out of every 10. So that means this is a major, major, major uh, uh, employing sector in the city. Out of those, half of them work in hundreds of small startups and half of them work in about 100 multinationals. So there's a balance here. Every time a multinational acquires a startup, that's a startup that will not exist. So the people in that startup become part of a multinational, brands we all know. They enjoy very, very high salaries. Uh, they enjoy the uh, opportunity of relocation. So on a national level, this might be an alarming phenomenon. These are startups that will never exist. These are people that might leave Israel and become part of the global corporation in New York or San Francisco or London. So we see on one hand in Israel, if you read Israeli financial media, this um, worship of the technology sector. It is, it is like the Wild West uh, in terms of if you're not there, uh, you're losing out on the party. But on the other hand, it's raising questions of what is the future of the city with real estate becoming so expensive? Uh, what happens to everybody else, which is extremely important for the city as well. The person that owns the shop and the artist and the teacher and, and, and the nurse and uh, all these other professions that are very, very important for a city to continue being vibrant and energetic. Since you mentioned it, I cannot uh, hesitate and, uh, and uh, you know, we've, we've, we've avoided uh, the elephant in the room so far. But we cannot keep ignoring it. Israel uh, was just, I'm sorry, Tel Aviv was just crowned as the world's most expensive city, not only uh, real estate, quite an honor. Uh, what are the downsides and the upsides of such a little, uh, a little, I'm sorry, a title in terms of tourism? I'm talking now, now not about the, the, the people that live in Tel Aviv that you just mentioned and, and uh, spoke about it, but tourism, how does it uh, affect the price of hotels? restaurants and will it make Tel Aviv a destination only for rich tourists? What, what can you do to make it more affordable to, uh, for tourists? That's a fantastic question. And you asked what are the upsides? I must say it, there are very few upsides. The only upside you can look at or you can find is it's, it's better to be the most expensive city and not the cheapest city in the world because that means something very bad about the city. Uh, in our case, I think it's Damascus. We definitely don't want to be Damascus. Um, but being the most expensive city in the world essentially is a title that I think is a, is a, is a devastating uh, PR point for us because it says that it's unaffordable. Now, it must be said that even before this title, we saw the rise of prices here in the city as something very alarming for all sectors, including the tourism sector. And when you asked before a question I didn't have a chance to answer about what are the uh, disadvantages of our tourism market, uh, from polls we do and conduct, the cost of services here in the city is something that all the tourists mention. So if you will, there is in tourism, we talk not about necessarily the cost, but the value for money. People are willing to pay a high price if they get a high value. People do not want to pay high prices if the value is low. And what people coming from countries, uh, Western countries uh, to Tel Aviv sometimes feel is that the city is fantastic, but the price was too expensive. So they love the restaurants, but they're too expensive. And they love going out at night, but the drinks are too expensive. And this is something that we must agree with because we as Israelis, when we travel to cities like uh, Paris 
and Berlin and even London. And we see that the commodities there are cheaper. We say this doesn't make any sense. And this is something that we're very alarmed about. And it is definitely not a good thing for a city to be a destination for rich people. The vibrancy of the city, the attractiveness of the city is for young people as for older people, as for families. And if the young people start coming to gay pride, and if young people stop coming to spend time on our beaches, and if young people stop coming to Israel in general to backpack, that's a bad thing for the tourism industry. And it's a bad thing for Israel as a whole. Let's uh, if, uh, finally uh, speak a little about uh, the crisis. So how has Tel Aviv been handling the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? After all, it is an incredibly diverse population, which includes retirees, many young people seeking adventures, African asylum seekers and labor migrants. How did you do it? Well, I think with, as other cities, we, we, we had to face um, this challenge um, in a very, very, very innovative way because it was new for anybody dealing with it. We didn't really have a pandemic in the past decade that anybody could draw, um, that could draw their experience from. One of the things that um, we noticed in the media team in City Hall, and actually I think my, my own mother for me was a model, is that we saw the emergence of the, the WhatsApp uh, as, if you will, as a media center. I'm sure Ben, you too, and everybody you know, spent the first few months of the pandemic, mainly when we were at home at, at social distancing, uh, sending each other links and uh, memes and all kinds of funny things that they received from other people. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we saw all of a sudden that this uh, power of one, the power of every individual citizen to spread information was very, very apparent during this time. Everybody was glued to the screen and watching news, but also spending time on their own devices. And as a city, getting the word of, around about where the vaccination centers were at a, earlier, at a later stage, but of course, uh, if you need help and food distribution and what to do and that type of stuff. So we started developing communal neighborhood types of uh, media spreading, which was not part of our practice. We were very good in doing national PR and in doing mainstream PR. And all of a sudden we needed all kinds of new uh, means of, of communication. So you talked about the foreign workers, for instance, or the asylum seekers, the refugees, very, very marginal parts of our society, but a large population. And we needed to find uh, community leadership. We needed to find pastors. We needed to find religious leadership that they trust because they don't necessarily trust the country or the state establishment. And through these people to get the message across, either come get vaccinated or stay home and that type of stuff. So as you know, Israel was very, very good in the first few waves, the, the first and second wave of Corona. Um, and the population here adhered to the instruction. Um, right now in the city, I would say the two major populations that we're concerned about are the children. We have a lot of parents which are reluctant to give the shots, um, the vaccination to their children. And we have the 20 to 40 segment, the young people, which are about one third of our population, which may have received one shot or two, even two vaccinations, but don't want the booster. There, there we see lower rates of vaccination, and it's very, very hard to get them to be vaccinated. So we have vaccination centers throughout the city which aren't attracting large numbers. And we have uh, the testing centers, which are extremely busy. So people are being tested all the time, but if they aren't vaccinated already, they don't want to be vaccinated. And it's a very, very, very challenging point we are at right now. I hope we will all get uh, through because uh, the Omicron now is going to get, I think, all of us. <laughs> 
And still we are in a, a lot better shape than London and Paris and New York. And let's hope it will stay like this. Satan Schwartz, it was a fascinating uh, conversation. I'm saying it as a proud Israeli and a Tel Aviv devoted fan. Come to visit Tel Aviv. It's a great city. And uh, thank you again for joining us here in Al Monitor. Thank you to Dayton. Thank you very much. Shalom. We will be back uh, right after this short break. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Keppel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East, on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for uh, staying with us. Uh, in the beginning of this uh, very interesting uh, conversation with uh, Ethan Schwartz from uh, Tel Aviv Municipality, we were speaking about uh, the concept of uh, the state of Tel Aviv, uh, contradicting, uh, of course, the state of Jerusalem. And Ethan said that uh, this phenomenon is not uh, exclusively Israeli, the same happens in many, many Western states, even in the United States, when New York is the liberal, uh, free uh, symbol of, uh, of the state, but it is not, uh, New York is not America, as, as we, we say. And of course, London in, in, in uh, England and uh, Paris in uh, France, etc., etc. He also said that he's not uh, looking or, or seeing or thinking about Tel Aviv as a different state. On vi the vice versa, Tel Aviv is a part of the, of the Israeli mosaic, of the Israeli society. Many, many Israelis from all parts of the country find themselves uh, finally going to Tel Aviv. So you cannot differentiate, really, in such a small uh, uh, state between Tel Aviv and, and, uh, and, and uh, elsewhere in Israel. Another interesting uh, thing was uh, talking about uh, marketing uh, tourism, marketing Israel in the tourism, uh, global tourism map. And he said that although we have Jerusalem, it's, it's the most sacred, uh, sacred uh, city on earth. It's, it's, uh, it's ancient and, and it's very, very important for all the three main uh, religions uh, of course, Christians and Jews and Muslims. After having said all that, Israel now is marketing, is targeting Tel Aviv as the location to come, as the as the buzz city. And what I didn't didn't know, and that he, he told us, is that uh, Yariv Levin, out of all people, he was minister of tourism in the last Likud. Netanyahu government is the symbol of conservatism in Israel, a, a very, very, an ultra-right-winger, and he recognized 
and targeted Tel Aviv as such a magnet to so many crowds and tourists abroad. And he was the first one that decided to uh, let Jerusalem, everyone knows everything about Jerusalem, and go on Tel Aviv. And he succeeded. The, the year before the COVID-19 invaded our life, Ethan Schwartz said that Tel Aviv had the, the best numbers ever of tourists coming from uh, abroad. We were also talking about uh, all the advantages in Tel Aviv. It's uh, becoming one of the most famous and popular capitals for uh, the LGBT, the culinary scene, the clubs, the hotels, the beaches, the thriving vegetarian and vegan scene. And uh, Ethan Schwartz was very candid when he said that Israel is using Tel Aviv in its uh, maybe front page uh, to show the world the, the, the good sides, the liberal sides, whenever they're talking about the settlers and the violence, etc. Now, the interesting, uh, the very interesting part was when we were talking about Tel Aviv as a high-tech, a, a cyber biotech, a, a startup capital of uh, one of the major concentration uh, capitals of the world. And he gave us many, many interesting figures. For example, that uh, today Tel Aviv is the city with the highest concentration of startups Uh, companies per capita or per square kilometer in the world. And another phenomenon that, that we were talking about is that five years ago, he, he said, uh, multinational uh, uh, high-tech uh, companies and giants discovered this uh, ecosystem in Tel Aviv and opened in their dozens offices or uh, R&D centers, and they are now buying and acquiring uh, many, many Israeli startups when they are relatively young. Uh, when I asked him if it's uh, good or bad, uh, he said that uh, it depends. If you're a part of it, it's, it's very good, it's fantastic. But if you're not, it's very bad and alarming. We did not skip the Tel Aviv being so expensive, number one in the world right now. And uh, of course, the real estate uh, prices are just unbelievable. But uh, actually, it was a very positive uh, conversation. And Tel Aviv is a great place to be, to live in, or to visit. And I hope you'll do it. And I also hope to find you here next uh, week uh, in the same place, in the same time. On Israel in Al Monitor, I'm Ben Kaspi. Yes, from Tel Aviv. Take care. Bye-bye.